Hello and welcome to DigFinVox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the content we're putting up here, give us a like, subscribe, let YouTube know. My guest today is Jennifer O'Rourke, Director of Innovation Strategy and Design at DTCC, the organization responsible for clearing and settling all securities traded in the U.S. She is at the forefront of DTCC's experiments with blockchain for clearing and settlement of tokens, public and private chains, and support now for the possibility of a digital dollar. Jennifer O'Rourke, welcome to DigFinBox. Thanks for having me, Jane. Uh, it's my pleasure, and I'm very excited to have this chat. You are at the, you're in the hot seat when it comes to innovation and financial infrastructure. Uh, tell us a little bit about your job as director of innovation for uh, strategy and design. Yeah, so at DTCC, we've been really targeted in the way that we're determining how innovation affects financial services. You know, we're an industry-owned utility, and so making sure that we're able to support the ways in which the market is changing and how those changes affect our clients is really top of mind for us, specifically because of the role that we play our mission. So um, as that, we're really focused on looking at emerging technologies as early as possible. The way that we do that is we're partnered with a technology team in our organization. And the two uh, areas compromise our innovation team together. So we have a business focus that looks at problems, pain points that our clients have through a business lens. And then we're immediately resourced and partnered with our technology area that is able to spin up solutions that we can experiment with and explore, you know, where we're actually building code. Um, and we're able to do this very quickly in our DevX environment. So we essentially have a sandbox that allows us to take these conceptual ideas and, and play with a bit of code in real life. Yeah. We're able to do so and then pull our clients in if it makes sense to start testing out some of these ideas. And so because of that, you know, our innovation team has been able to take a real meaningful position in the organization to turn some of these explorations into uh, solutions that will go into production. You guys have been working on a variety of blockchain related technology projects for several years. Um, I think some of your first ones probably came out in the early years of Digfin itself. Uh, Give me a quick walkthrough. Uh, so a year ago, I was talking to some of your colleagues about some of the projects you were working on. Uh, give us a quick walkthrough of what you've learned so far, and then we'll dive into some of the, the newer stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been at this for a little while now. Back um, in 2015, we wrote a blockchain white paper as we began this exploration um, back then. This led us to really focus on um, building out our um, now uh, innovation office. Um, and so during that time, we've been able to explore a variety of um, 
uh, crypto-based and security tokenization solutions. In particular, I think your audience will be familiar with our Project Ion and Project Whitney. Um, these two projects respectively were looking at the ways in which DLT can facilitate, you know, first as it relates to Project Ion, accelerated settlement and uh, additional settlement windows. And so we wanted to look at how tokenizing security assets and leveraging networks could provide those efficiencies, you know, that we've been evaluating within this technology structure. And, and then and, second to that. Okay, good, please. Yeah, so, and then second to that, our project Whitney, which we now um, refer to as our DSM. So Project Whitney is actually looking at how DTCC can support the primary market um, with tokenized security issuance. And uh, we're now you know, on a path that's focused on moving that to production as well. Uh, just quick, DSM stands for what? Um, this is our uh, digital security management. Okay, thank you. Now, why blockchain? I hear often that maybe this is just, you know, it's an append-only ledger. Uh, you know, it's it's not that flexible. It could be in the public versions that we've seen, like like Ethereum or Bitcoin, that's very slow. Uh, why this technology? Uh, are, are there other ways that we could achieve things like atomic settlement with with other type of relational database technologies, or is there something about the blockchain stuff that that creates something that's unique? Mm -hmm. I think that the answer to your question is there are other options and the onus on us is to explore these options and determine which capabilities each technology solution and architecture in many ways um, is a best fit for the problems that we're trying to solve. So, for example, there are going to be other, uh, you know, distributed database solutions that could be applied in, you know, light of solving these problems. But when you start to then add on additional capabilities like uh, tokenizing a security um, and providing smart contract or programmable, programmable functionality you know, uh, to a transaction, then you start to really unlock some of the power that distributed ledger technology provides. And so it's that aggregation of a variety of capabilities that have pointed us to this particular technology. But I do think that it's important to pull out, um, you know, the point that you're making, James, which is that it blockchain is in many areas a solution in search of a problem and so we've taken a very critical view when we evaluate our use cases to ensure that a blockchain solution that we are applying is a very tightly scoped one for the use case that is not just putting a solution on a chain but rather understanding what additional capabilities and therefore value that we can unlock by putting a solution on a network or on a chain. Very interesting. You're now working on something called Project Lithium, which is yes. looking at the potential for a digital dollar if that emerges. What is the relationship between you guys as a clearing and settlement hub and the prospect of a digital dollar? Where do you come in theoretically to support that? And, and of course, love to hear more about Project Lithium. 
Yeah, definitely. So just to, to set the table here, when you think about a central bank digital currency, a central bank digital currency could apply, be applied to the banking system in, in two ways, you know, in, in a retail application and a wholesale application. So central banks around the world are looking at both of these applications and DTCC is focused on the wholesale application because obviously that's where we fit into um, the two-tiered uh, financial system. So within a wholesale application, we would be looking at how a central bank digital currency would come into the ecosystem, you know, issued by the Fed and then be utilized by our clients, settlement banks, custodians, etc. And as we look towards that future, which still is a ways off, but as we look towards that on the horizon, we want to make sure that we're going to have the settlement optionality to take that in when the time is right for us to do so. And so um, we're exploring Project Lithium as a means you know, to support that. But we're also thinking about other ways that we're you know, modernizing our settlement rails. And again, with the goal in mind of providing optionality for our clients here. Because in the U.S. Uh, in the securities market, now the big thing is moving from T plus three, so three days after a trade to fully uh, have DVP delivery versus settlement, down to T plus two, right? That's sort of like the big project in the, in the U.S. right now. Um, when you think about a digital currency or a wholesale CBDC, how necessary is that in the sense that maybe America just has very legacy, outdated infrastructure, it needs to work on those things to achieve the same outcomes? Or is there a, a leapfrog here that a CBDC could represent? So it's interesting you say that because right now today, DTCC has the capability to process transactions same day, T1, T2. And so we've had those capabilities for years. However, the industry itself, because of you know, clients' preferences around trading strategies, funding strategies, and just general kind of market makeup. For those reasons, the industry itself has preferred to settle, um, you know, within some of the longer cycles, which we support. And now what we're hearing is that the benefits uh, and capital efficiencies in particular of accelerating settlement are a motivating factor enough to coordinate the participants in the industry to look towards some of these earlier settlement cycles. That makes a lot of sense to us. And like I said, we can support that today, but what we want to do is be forward facing in terms of how we support that. And that's where experimenting with some of these, uh, you know, technologies and the additional functionality that DLT enables comes in. Now to tie this back to lithium, Lithium is, you know, by, by pro, you know, Project Lithium and essentially the idea of operationally supporting a central bank digital currency, that would uh, right now be explored through Project Lithium in a real-time gross settlement fashion. So we would be looking at same-day settlement. Um, and the difference between comparing 
a real-time growth settlement that Project Lithium would facilitate, and the fact that DTCC can already facilitate, you know, same day, T1, T2, et cetera. The difference between these two really is going to be the asset that is moving through the systems. So obviously in Lithium's case, central bank digital currency. And so the focus of Lithium um, becomes more on taking in tokens from uh, the government and you know the Fed as the external source and bringing those into our organization on behalf of our, our clients to facilitate that particular type of assets settlement. Um, and then the, the functionality of doing that in accelerated or real-time or same-day fashion is one that, although it runs parallel to some of the capabilities we have already, is distinct because of the asset that is actually being brought in for post-trade services. It's also distinct, though, that you know, in a, as you say, real time, uh, these things can be not T plus zero, but T plus, you know, seconds or minutes. Uh, yeah. But the industry is still, you know, going through, uh, I guess, a, it's a big deal for them to go from T plus three to T plus two. So how yeah. much demand or what would have to happen, do you think, for a digital dollar to be uh, taken on in a way that people would be prepared for instant settlement? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. It's one that we spend a lot of time thinking about. So the first thing that would have to happen is that um, the Fed and not only the Fed, but the Fed in conjunction with the Treasury and a congressional approval, you know, after, you know, receiving congressional approval. So there would be a significant government process that would actually initiate the creation of a central bank digital currency. And we still are a little ways off before we see that coming down at us. So first of all, we'd need to see this initiated on the public, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the public side. Then once we do to the to the crux of your question here, James, is that we would need to take this in uh, this asset in under the uh, the policies that were created by the government. And at that point in time, we're going to have an idea of the utilization from our clients. I think we can we can speculate um, about interest because we are seeing significant interest, you know, to access these digital assets and participate in these systems. But when it comes to the actual uptick, um, we're really going to have to see what that means to, the, to not only our clients, but their clients. To your point, when you have immediate settlements, it's not uh, as it doesn't, it, it affects all elements of a trade life cycle, clearly. But I look towards the execution segment of the trade life cycle in particular, because considering what a end client's uh, collateral management strategy or um, you know, their uh, trading strategy with, in conjunction with all kinds of margin and collateral um, efficiencies, those decisions will be made at execution. And so it'll be very interesting to see the participants um, you know, that are more focused on that segment of the life cycle and what it means to their trading, funding, and um, settlement strategies. 
And then we position ourselves at the post-trade settlement area of the life cycle to be prepared to take that in whatever it looks like. And so our perspective here is to ensure that when the government says central bank digital currencies will be issued uh, you know, at this time and in this manner, we are able to take that into our systems and support that for our clients, regardless of how and when we see that coming down the pike. Yeah. But I think it will be very interesting to watch some of the market uh, adjustments that are made earlier in the life cycle around execution. Because I'd like to get, uh, it's very theoretical at this point. Uh, I'm sure you wouldn't have any concrete answer to this question, but maybe you've got some idea or maybe people are beginning to ask this question, which is, it's the chicken and egg question. So when I speak with uh, big banks, for example, about what they want to do with tokenization, which is a very exciting thing. I mean, there's a lot of really cool use cases for putting securities in a purely digital format from, from A to Z. Uh, but they will often say, but we're waiting for CBDCs because we need a cash leg settle the securities leg in this format. So they sort of kick the can to the governments essentially. But at the same, so you're working on building that, but at the same time, you need, if you're going to develop the cash, the digital cash format, you need tokens representing securities to do something with. Uh, so do you have a sense of building that ecosystem it, not just the, the nuts and bolts of the plumbing that, that you focus on, but I guess the use cases, the demand, I mean, do you get into any of those questions? Yeah, so we definitely, we appreciate that this is, uh, a, a, there's a facilitation between in a natively digital asset, like a central bank digital currency, and then a token that's created to represent a security that's already been issued. And to your point, when we're seeing these different use cases structured, we're accounting for both of those things. So how do we take a, represent, a digital representation of a security and then a cash alternative, a digital cash alternative, and think that through? And so we're, you know, when we build out the prototypes that we're experimenting with in earlier phases of many of our projects, we're able to uh, hypothesize through a couple of different scenarios. Because to your point, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. So what we need to do to ensure that we're prepared for all of the variety of options that this thing could look like is to experiment with a variety of different uh, models of a particular use case. Um, we're being very thoughtful about this in the company. Obviously, we're doing work with cash alternatives like central bank digital currency through Project Lithium that we're talking about today. But we're also exploring um, separate to Project Lithium, stable coins and other element, other capabilities that we want to have within these IT platforms. And that exploration, or rather, I think the, the strategy that we are deploying for this type of exploration is foundational 
to ensure that there aren't any significant gaps in our experiments. So we do like to come from a position where we recognize natively digitized tokens and security tokens that need to be issued to represent those that are being held by a variety of different participants, thinking about how they can actually interact together and what are the intended and unintended consequences when they do so. Yeah, so you've, you've raised two super exciting areas to talk about. One is stable coins, but I'm gonna put that aside for just a minute and maybe just focus on that last piece that you mentioned, which is interoperability. This is everybody's favorite buzzword, anything to do with networks, yeah. right? Um, now, DTCC, you clear and settle things in US dollars. Uh, and so foreign investors and, and foreign banks and brokers are, are, you know, they're obviously owning and trading US securities, but they're doing it in dollars. So you don't, you don't have to worry about whether they convert that back into euros or yen or something else. Um, but when it comes to these sort of blockchain networks, uh, what are the interoperability questions that you're looking at? What are you coming up against? Let's say if the ECB comes up with a digital euro, uh, would you, you know, how would that interact with you? Or if it's a private stable coin that, you know, it's a USDC or some other version of that, uh, you know, where do you see those, those touch points where a digital dollar that you are providing infrastructure for could rub up against other protocols. Um, you know, it could be a commercial bank's own internal coin or something like that. Just mm -hmm. get a sense of where do you see those 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 boundaries, uh, those frictions, and do you have a sense of what interoperability could mean? Yeah, yeah. So you're right. There's going to be some really interesting experiments coming up as we start to look at cross-border explorations around central bank digital currency. And there are some organizations that are already doing that in Europe and Asia. Um, and so with, within the central bank digital currency vein, it's very interesting to watch central banks that have been looking at central bank digital currency for a little while now mature their exploration to really focus on cross-border. So that need is absolutely there. From DTCC's perspective, we are, when we look forward to our roadmap of areas that we will be exploring, we are looking at those type of explorations as well. So we look at Project Lithium as you know a very important starting point, but there will be additional explorations that start to touch on these inflection points around interoperability, such as cross-border, cross-currency, et cetera. So although we're not doing that now, we're certainly going to be looking at those. Are you looking at what's happening in Asia where there's some really exciting projects going on here? Um, there's something called Project Dunbar between Singapore, Australia, South Africa, and, and I think um, uh, I'm going to get in trouble now. I think it's the Emirates. Um, and mm -hmm. then also there's something called the MCDCB Bridge in Hong Kong, which mm -hmm. involves Thailand and the People's Bank of China. I think also the Emirates and also and the um, and of course the the Hong Kong MA. Um, so the you know in Asia you've already got a lot of uh, projects that are looking explicitly at cross border. Uh, is this something that you're tracking and are, are you getting any kind of hints or clues or lessons from what's happening here? Yeah, so so we are. We're, we're very lucky that we uh, have good relationships with those folks. And so we've been able to, you know, keep abreast of the incredible work that they're doing. And I think the area that, you know, I know that they're focused on and, the, and that really catches our attention is when you start to look at it 
interoperability from a technological perspective, but then also from a standards perspective. And when I talk about standards, you know, the first step of standards is coordination. So getting the participants on the same page in terms of how things will work and how are we actually going to, you know, negotiate some of the distinctions between certain, uh, you, you know, regulatory geography, geographies and, and those requirements um, and then the the need to have alignment and continuity within the process and so I think this is where DTCC is positioned incredibly well to work with our clients and you know their uh, their offices outside of our country and to leverage those relationships to bring everyone together to start having those conversations around coordination standards, excuse me, standards, and then how that matures into um, a protocol. And after that point, this is where the technology comes into play. And I think this is what's so important about the experimentation is because when you consider connecting two networks, whether they be two networks that are on, you know, the uh, the same protocol or starting to connect networks that are on different protocols. You really need to kick the tires on the technology so that you can get tripped up early on the things that you're going to get tripped up on and then have time to really work the problem on the areas where you need to think a little bit more specifically again about coordination um, and standard making. Because there isn't really a precedent for this. I mean, the closest thing might be SWIFT, which was set up uh, to address, this goes back to the 70s, right? To address the Herstadt risk in, in foreign exchange. Uh, and, you know, that was uh, at, at a time when it was possible to kind of, I guess, knock some heads together and, and create a, a centralized messaging platform. Now we're looking at, um, you know, many different governments and private players. Um, so do you have a sense of when it comes to interoperability and building those standards, uh, you know, you've talked about experimenting and, and working with these guys. You've talked about the technology, I guess, will be the final arbiter of, of which one works. But do you have a sense of what will be some of the, 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 the issues that you'll have to address and, and who, how will that how that process might play out? Yeah, I think, you know, some of the issues are really going to be uh, underlined by regulatory requirements in different regions. Um, you know, considerations around um, privacy, how much information needs to be shared uh, in one you know, um, jurisdiction versus another uh, is very top of mind. So finding ways that different protocols provide different solutions between who can see what and when and for how long, I think that's where we can look towards the technology and really see the way in which it becomes an enabler of these type of regulatory rules. Um, so first and foremost, looking at this opportunity through a regulatory lens to understand what could be done now, or is there an opportunity to consider the way that regulations may mature in the future and what kind of impact that that could have on standards and, and thus protocols. Um, I think that the, there's a lot of focus around the technology and rightly so because if you can't make the widgets work mm -hmm. then you know you have a non-starter so that makes sense but i think once we 
get over that hill. And we're seeing success with that, you know, based on the um, proof of concepts and prototypes that are coming out of Asia and Europe. So it's not as though this is an, a problem that the industry is butting up against and unable to solve. But as we see that, uh, you know, that work continue to progress, then I think we're going to get to a point where we can start to see the ways that some additional capabilities um, really provide additional functionalities and might solve for some of the challenges around time zones, regulatory requirements, et cetera, because this is where, again, smart contracts um, and just uh, the, the functionality that this architecture provides does allow for very specific rules and approaches that can be provided to very specific uh, you know, participants within the system. Yeah, and and at the same time, programmable money is a very uh, cool concept. Uh, a lot could be done uh, just up to the create the creativity. I think of, of people to figure out how to use it. At the same time, the immutability of blockchain can also be a problem because if there's an error or a disagreement or yeah. a, a different sense of interpretation, you've got to find ways to allow these systems to somehow uh, have flexibility, have human flexibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, the work that we're doing at DTCC, we're looking at both private and public blockchains. And I think that's really important because, again, we want to make sure that we have that optionality um, within our solutions. And there are different trade-offs between the different public pro protocols and private protocols. So when we are looking at um, you know, the public protocols, we recognize that there is an immutability um, that needs to be recognized. There's certain, you know, um, there are certain trade-offs that we're just going to have to be aware are, you know, of. When we think of the private blockchains and, the, and those protocols, obviously we have a significant uh, degree of flexibility in terms of governance. And so the constraint of immutability is not as uh, permanent right. there. And when you think of, you know, our DTCC and our clients, you know, we are sat in a highly regulated industry. And so we need to be really thoughtful about what it means to uh, tr look at the trade-offs that the technology applies, but understand that there that this needs to function within the regulatory framework. And so, private blockchains have been very interesting to us for that reason, for the flexibility that they provide. And within that flexibility, there are fewer trade-offs that we have to evaluate in terms of the use case. Right. Yeah. Obviously, the the big trade-off what you miss out on is perhaps the reachability of a public blockchain, but that may not necessarily be the mission that you're trying to achieve. Exactly. Stable coins. Uh, we've, you know, you and I are speaking about two weeks after uh, Terra, which was the fourth biggest stable coin flamed out. Um, what is, what, what, at the same time, we've seen commercial banks launch their own stable coins uh, internally, uh, different use cases. We, we've documented stuff from by ANZ in, in Australia, for example, JP Morgan. Uh, so where do you see stable coins vis-a-vis -a, -vis a digital dollar? Obviously you're not a policymaker, uh, but in terms of, I guess, the clearing and settlement side, is there a difference? Mm -hmm. I think in terms of functionality, that's quite similar. Um, and so what it really comes down to is the speed at which this asset will start interacting with capital markets and with institutional um, 
clients within capital markets. And right now, you know, we, the market's reacting to the stablecoin event and to, you know, ambiguity around what regulations may be coming down the line towards stablecoins. So although, we, as I said, we are looking to explore stablecoins and we know that many of our clients do, we're looking at this from a perspective of we want to make sure that when the market wants us to take in this asset, we are able to do so. And, you know, the to obviously to do so within the regulatory requirements. And those really just go hand in hand. Obviously, the market's not going to move faster, you know, with regulatory friction. So when the market's at a point in time where we start seeing, you know, direct interest from institutions in, in processing stable coins through, a, you know, a full life cycle, that's a that's an, a time that we want to be prepared to process these as well, so that our clients can come to us and say, you know, we want you to take in central bank digital currencies, stable coins, and even these tokenized assets, is uh, in and move them through the post trade services, you know, that you have. I think that you know when it comes down to how we will take this in. We just need to make sure that all of the options that we could consider are ones that we can provide our clients. Jennifer, it's been really fascinating speaking with you. Um, last question, I guess, is with Project Lithium, what are the ways that you're going to measure its success or its viability to go ahead to the next stage? Yeah, so the way that we are looking at Project Lithium is through a client engagement lens. We're building out a prototype that's going to facilitate real-time gross settlement. Um, we'll be able to take a digitized uh, equity security and then a central bank digital, uh, central bank digital uh, token. And we'll be able to actually run a transaction where these two are exchanged it atomically. And for those that aren't familiar with atomic settlement, this is conditional settlement. So in this case, for delivery versus payment, as soon as the digitized equity security is available and the central bank digital security is available, those would be immediately exchanged with finality. Yes. And so we're when we look at that particular use case, what we're going to be measuring is one, was it successful? Were there any unintended you know, issues that prohibited us from bringing the technology to a full evaluation? Obviously we don't expect any of those, but more so what we're really focused on is the clients that are able to participate in this experiment with us, what's their feedback? You know, what does this mean to the way that they would integrate with a solution like this, the way that it would affect their systems, how they're thinking about implications to treasury and funding for their clients? And um, what does it mean for them to be interacting with a networked solution as opposed to some traditional technology architectures? So when we really focus on getting that feedback from our clients, those are the success criteria that we're looking for. And then as a result of Project Lithium, um, what we'll be doing is writing a white paper that we'll publish and share with the 
uh, regulators and industry will be publicly sharing this towards the end of the year so that all of the results, um, whether they were you know, successful or even unsuccessful, the good, the bad, and the ugly will be publicly shared so that we can build upon this experiment. And just to add on a little bit more context for those that aren't familiar with the Digital Dollar Project, we're running Project Lithium as the first of nine pilots under the umbrella of the Digital Dollar Project. This is a, a nonprofit organization that was spun up by, um, in partnership with Accenture and former CFTC chair, uh, Chris Giancarlo. The goal of DDP's work is to Put, you know, take nine pilots such that they can evaluate the impact of a central bank digital currency to both the retail and wholesale markets. So we're incredibly excited to be the first pilot um, to be focused on the wholesale space and to then be able to deliver the results of our experiment directly to the public and regulators and the industry so that this can become a building block that we all can move forward upon together. Yeah, that's great. Obviously, the, the, I guess the most advanced in the world is, is China, which is already piloting its DCEP, which is not based on blockchain. It is a uh, retail uh, version of a CD, uh, CBDC. Um, and, but I guess that's a very different project. But is there a sense that, I said it was the last question, but this is my last question for you, Jennifer. Yeah. Uh, is there a sense that, um, that things in America are, are, need, to, need to speed up a little bit? <laughs> So um, I think when we look at the work that, that China's done, it is really incredible to see how far they've come. However, from a design perspective, there are elements that they've deployed that we are still in consideration of. So we had talked about privacy before um, and the ways in which the, the uh, China's central bank digital currency, you know, is very focused on aggregating data about the person that uses the token and analyzing that data. And they've been very explicit um, and open about this from the beginning. So when we look to experiment ourselves, there will be requirements around privacy um, that will be different than what we're seeing in China. And so comparing the where we are now with the lens of what has been done, I think is really important in terms of that evaluation because there are going to be principles that the Fed will share with, um, uh, you know, with us that that will focus on on privacy um, and and preserving um, that which we are very accustomed to here in America. So from a exploration point of view, I think, yes, it's quite notable to look at how far that they and other central banks have come. But as we look towards their work, we're able to evaluate some of the requirements that they've incorporated into their design and then take that to determine if those are uh, aligned with the principles that we would deploy here in the States. And in doing so, we're able to, you know, uh, build off of their work as well. And I don't think that that's, um, I, don't, I, I look to that and I see that as a benefit, being able to, you know, consider results that have already been achieved and then bring those in to our design 
you know, our, our design elements and design thinking as well as I think quite important. That's right. Uh, let, let the first movers learn some lessons. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And take the, take the best, hopefully, from what they've, what they've already accomplished. So yeah. uh, Jennifer O'Rourke, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure having you on Dish Finbox. Thanks for having me, James.